during this, um, this series has kind of served to uh, recalibrate our thinking and our understanding around what the church should be. And one of the things that I'm reminded of often that's so important for um, the individualized sort of culture that we live in is that Christ did not enter our world just to make a way for my personal salvation. The good news of Jesus Christ, yes, calls you to salvation, but it also calls you to be a part of a body of Christ that is desiring and praying and doing whatever is necessary to be faithful to God's call to both grow and multiply the kingdom of God until Christ returns. And that mission is captivating and it is what God calls us to. And today we're looking at the end goal of what God is building. That that we're going to see in the passage of scripture uh, this morning that it cannot be about numbers or programs. It is about transformation. And so get your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 4. Turn there as I pray for our time in God's word. Uh, God, I um, believe that the confident proclamation that you will Um, always show up in every circumstance and we will never be disappointed, you will never be late, you will always provide and meet uh, the needs of your people, that um, you will always fulfill the promises that you have laid out for us in your word over our lives. And Father, that reality comes because uh, your word clearly outlines the fact that your desire is to transform us both individually and collectively and then through the individual change, God and us rallying together can also achieve the change and transformation that you're desiring. I pray, God, that this morning that you would allow this message to challenge us right at the core of who we are, both as individual people of God, but as the collective people of God. You would give us pause, as I believe we need, and you would lead us forward to be faithful to what you've called us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, so a popular term uh, in uh, kind of in the world in recent years, and it's sort of filtered into a lot of conversations around the church and faith, is the word deconstruction. And deconstruction is, is really a, a kind of a, a word that refers to re-examining and rethinking a belief. You can deconstruct anything. You can deconstruct anything. And I A fear that deconstruction as a category, like many other categories in our world today, has gotten a bad rap because it's been associated oftentimes with the process that some people have gone through to abandon the faith. And so deconstruction's gotten a bad rap. But deconstruction, the word, if you understand it, the process of what's around it can actually also lead to reconstruction or another word that people in the church tend to like a bit more, the word revival. The word revival. Because here's the thing, the church should be a place where both those confident in whatever season they're in or doubting in whatever season they're in should feel welcomed. A right, careful evaluation of our faith and our walk and our life should not just be allowed, but should be encouraged. We must learn to embrace deep questions and challenge thinking both patiently, carefully, lovingly, and most importantly, biblically. 
But we've got to walk in this because some things in the church, as we've navigated over these past few weeks, like just need to be deconstructed. Most of you know I spent 10 years before planting this church on staff at a church in Chicago. During my time there, I saw some beautiful, beautiful fruit of gospel ministry. I also saw a leadership culture that was deeply flawed and needed deconstruction. Eventually, during my final years there and after I left, I both witnessed and then heard testimony of God bringing a season of deconstruction. And now I'm hearing testimonies from so many friends and others that have told me that the season of reconstruction is happening. Because God is faithful, always. And that season left a mark on me, some negative and some positive. And I'm deeply thankful for a close friends around my life that have walked alongside me as I've at different moments and to degrees have needed to deconstruct and reconstruct some healthier things both for my soul, both for my leadership and for the church and then specifically in my leadership here, this church. The process um, is gonna continue because that's what it means to be faithful to a God who wants to transform and is never done. And I want Christ Church to be a place where, where we bring unhealthy patterns of brokenness and unhealthy patterns of thinking, not to discount them or imagine that they're not a reality or, or, or lessen them in any way, but I want to bring them under the rule and reign of Christ and his word. Not tradition, not any other realities that we see in our culture, but we want his word to truly challenge and guide our perspective on the church. And so I say that because I can't come to Ephesians 4 and not let it be a fresh challenge to what we're immersed in in our faith, both before God individually and together collectively. So with that, we've got to allow this passage in Ephesians to deconstruct and reconstruct our perspective on the local church. Let's read it together. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So what I'm going to do in this a message is pretty simple. I'm going to teach through this passage. I'm going to raise three questions that we need to ask that this passage answers so clearly. Because we want to fulfill our mission to, to be what God's called us to be. To love God and to love others and to make disciples of all nations. And we want to deconstruct and reconstruct anything that would get in the way of that central purpose. But here's the big move clearly from this passage. Build up the body into the fullness of Christ. That is a mandate not just for me, it's a mandate for us. To build up the body into the fullness of Christ. 
It's highlighted twice in the passage. Verse 13, we're called to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what you're called to. That's what we're called into. Verse 15 says, called to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Build the body of Christ into the fullness of Christ. In the gospel, by salvation, by God's grace, in his power, we are called to be formed into the likeness of Christ. So we're going to walk through these three questions that are in your notes, and we're going to see how the passage clearly answers those. And then at the end, I want to talk about um, how this passage is bringing some tension to our church specifically. So first question, who builds disciples in the local church? Who builds disciples? Who makes disciples? Look at verses 11 and 12. The five leadership roles in verse 11 represent the speaking and teaching and training ministry that is needed within the church. Apostles give vision for expansion and growth. Prophets call out needed change. Evangelists invite people to the faith. Shepherds care for and protect God's people. And teachers communicate the truth. Church leadership is responsible then to proclaim, teach, and train the body of Christ to be the body of Christ, to be faithful to what Christ commanded us, as it says in in Matthew, to love God, love others, and make disciples of all nations. Let's just keep it really simple. Let's keep it really simple here. Disciples who are learning and growing into the likeness of Christ and reflecting his character. But too often, too often what happens in churches today the fruit that's produced, it, it actually seems to conclude that people believe that church leadership is responsible to do all the work of ministry because they're the only ones qualified to do it. And everyone else is just supposed to attend church, sit in the seats, shut up and do what they're told. Sometimes that seems to be the environment that's produced. A small minority of active leaders and a large majority of passive followers. Good at gathering, not so great at equipping or working. Lots of events, not a lot of work, of ministry. But that is not what the word teaches. If that's a reality in any aspect or, 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 or place within the context of our church, if that exists within your mind, Ephesians 4 wants to eradicate that, wants to deconstruct that, challenge it, and then reconstruct something way healthier and way more joyful for your life. I mean, church, what does it say in verse 12? Like, like just read this with me. Read this with me. Like, let's just read it together because here's what it says. Ephesians 4.12. Okay, start with me, church. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Equip, in the original language, means to develop for a purpose. That's what's supposed to be happening in our church. In, in every person's life that would call this church Home. Equip who? Equip the saints. Saints is a New Testament term for holy ones or those who have set themselves apart for God through their faith in Christ. In the the Catholic background, saints are people who have achieved great things for God or who have sacrificed in some noteworthy way. 
but you are not qualified as a saint because of your good works. And I'm really thankful for that. Because we'd always be trying to measure up to the word saint. Every person who has put their faith in Christ is a saint. Is a saint. He, Jesus Christ, indwells you. He qualifies you. He empowers you for good works through his work on the cross. And Christ wants every saint to be equipped for the work of ministry. Now it also says in that passage, it says it's a work. So warning label, everyone. If, if you're like, is this going to require effort? Yes. I, sorry, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't reconstruct the word work to mean anything else than effort. And that just reinforces last week's message. You're called to be a contributor, not a consumer. But not just any work, the work of ministry. Ministry simply means to serve one another for their benefit. And this is going to be defined more clearly as we get to the rest of the passage, but this is clear so far. Every person who claims to be a disciple in Christ should be engaged in the work of ministry. The church has a responsibility to appoint leaders, church leaders, who are qualified to prepare saints for ministry. And church leaders should be working primarily on equipping saints to do the work of ministry. Who builds disciples in the local church? Every saint. Every saint. Anyone who has rightly and completely bowed the knee before Jesus Christ and has committed their life to him and has asked the Spirit of God to indwell their hearts and has committed every part of their life to be under the rule and reign of Christ is a saint who is intended by God to be equipped for a purpose. And if you have not gotten there, there is a step, a move, a place that you need to move towards purposefully. Who builds disciples in the local church? Every saint. Second question. What characteristics of ministry lead people to fullness in Christ? I love this section of Ephesians 4. Eyes on the passage. Look what it says. It says that God's call to the church, verse, verse 13, notice what it says. It says the reason why the whole building of the body of Christ, the whole work of ministry, verse 13, first four words, until we all attain. There's, there's something that, that we're supposed to be, there's something we're supposed to be moving towards. There's something that we're supposed to be more deeply grabbing hold of in the faith. And that word there should cause our hearts to go, what is there for me to attain? that would lead to me being built up into the body of Christ. First, two things. Right in this passage, you can see them right there. First, attain to the unity of the faith. Faith is simply trust in Christ and his gospel. If you're looking for more clarity on what that is, church, whenever we're reading the scriptures, we should look to the immediate context first, if you're asking more questions. Look with me at the context earlier in Ephesians 4. Look back to verses 3 through 5. I'm sorry, 3 through 6. Follow along with me and just look there. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is, notice how many times one is used. One is a symbol for unity. In our culture, we're not used to one. There's like many decisions, I feel like, on everything. Like you walk through the grocery store, you're just like, ah, uh, 
so many decisions. I tend to just default to price, but you know, everybody's got their way of navigating that, the many. But here, it's isolating the one because the one leads us to unity, unity of the faith. Look what it says. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Can we just consider these things together? Because if, if you were to ask me, what do you think should unify a church? I, I think if I was rightfully coming under the reality of Scripture, I'd probably turn right here to Ephesians 4. Let's just walk through this. One body, unity found with other followers of Christ, connected to the body of Christ and fulfilling their roles. Because this one body of Christ is the, is the body that I'm going to be a part of for eternity. Probably should be a priority in this life. One spirit, a life submitted to the Spirit of God, turning away from the temptations of all other spirits. One hope. I don't know about the rest of you, but I got my hope. There's, there's things I like to temporarily hope in for seasons, particularly when it comes to my sports teams I like to cheer for, just for seasons. But this hope is like all of my eggs are in this basket. It is, I'm not putting my hope in this world. My, my full hope is in the gospel. One Lord fully and completely submitted to Jesus Christ alone, one faith, trust in Christ and having an intimacy with him because I'm striving to abide in him, one baptism. There was one moment in my freshman year of college when I publicly declared my faith in Christ that signified my unity in the faith and my commitment to it. One God and Father of all, who it says there in in, in chapter 4, who is over all and through all and in all. That I'm completely and totally consumed with the God who stands over everything. Unity in this. This is unity of the faith. And churches have gotten ripped down the middle because they try to make, they try to fit about another hundred things onto that, onto that slide. Have you seen it? Have you seen a church? And then they add all this other stuff about the world and their own personal convictions of all sorts of craziness. Just review the past two years if it doesn't make you too nauseous. And they try to stuff as much on there as they can. And as they do that, the unity they get grows smaller and smaller. In a world full of options, this is our unity. Unity of the faith. Unity of the faith. And this leads people to fullness in Christ because it's focused on, on the realities of the gospel, what it calls us to essentially. And then the second one, so important after unity of the faith, is knowledge of the Son of God. Now, I've, I've, I've repeated and emphasized this again and again, and I will not stop as long as God gives me breath and a sermon to preach. In the original language, the word know, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is not an academic or simply mental knowing. I believe the reason why I need to reinforce this is because this is one of the biggest problems of our understanding when it comes to the gospel because of our Western understanding of knowing. If you go into most Eastern cultures, they get this at a level that is more difficult for those who have been raised in America 
No means biblically to come to understand both personally and experientially. It is an embodied and experiential knowledge. Knowing the Son of God means you are progressively coming to personally and relationally understand the Son of God. The word that captures the spirit of this best in the New Testament is the word abide. Is the word abide. It captures it. It captures the the beauty of it, the depth of it, the potentiality of it. Knowing Christ means that Knowing Christ, knowing your knowledge of the Son of God means that you're increasingly embodying and experiencing Him. Let's just walk through some of the things. You're increasingly embodying and experiencing Him as the Savior and King of your life. That at times He's fully God to you in glory and in His deity. And then there's times when he's fully human to you as he walks closely to you, closely alongside you in your pain and struggle. He's been crucified not just for these sins of the world, but for your sins. He's been resurrected from the dead not just for the victory over sin and death, but for your victory. He's reigning on high not just over everyone's life, but over your life. You're indwelt by his spirit. You're empowered for works as you have been transformed into his likeness. And he's not just leading the church to fulfill his mission, but he's leading you to fulfill his mission. Knowledge of the Son of God. That is what it means here. It is a a phrase just swelling with, with, with potential and opportunity and invitation for your life and for mine. Unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God when when lived out leads to maturity. That's what leads to maturity, church. A disciple that's growing into the stature of of the fullness of Christ actually beginning to embody and experience the reality of the person of Christ is just unbelievable. It's the transforming work of the gospel that, that, that when you're operating in it and when you're living there, it's the work of the gospel through the power of Jesus Christ and his spirit on a human life from the inside out where it transforms your heart and it leads to a, way, a new way of thinking that then leads to actions that are redeemed and point to something outside of us. What characteristics of ministry lead people to fullness in Christ? Growing unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. And that brings us to the third question. What are the evidences of growth in a local body of Christ? So if you're at this point, you're like, okay, okay, okay. So, so, I'm, so every person is, is called to be a part of a making disciples. And, and the characteristics of this are unity of the faith, a growing, increasing unity in the faith, and a knowledge of the Son of God. But what's the evidence? What's the evidence that this is playing out in the body of Christ? Notice in verse 14 what it says there, two words right at the beginning, so that, which means that everything previous, particularly 11 through 13, exists 
so that something would result. So that something would result. So it designates what should come when we're maturing into the fullness of Christ. So let's just kind of take our lives together, individually and collectively as a church, and let's just, let's just evaluate a bit. Let's evaluate a bit. Two evidences follow. First, increasing stability. We're no longer like children tossed to and fro by waves or carried away by the wind of some deceptive human doctrine. Notice that the stability is a result of unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. It comes on the back of that. Increased stability. A church, um, bad news, um, you will never be able to avoid the existence of the wind or the waves. But, but good news, Christ is completely sufficient beyond your wildest imagination right now, no matter how long you've walked with Christ, no matter how many years you've served and followed him. Uh, he wants to, beyond your wildest imagination, bring you stability right in the middle of the wind and the waves. You can find stability. You can find stability. Stability is found through the means of grace that Christ has provided. It, it flows right out of this unity of the faith and right out of knowledge of the Son of God that I already framed up for you. It's, it's the process of then learning more about Christ and his plan for your life and his word. It's conversing with him uh, more deeply and more often in prayer. It's gathering with God's people to worship, to learn, and to be equipped for the work of ministry. It's actually living out the work of ministry as it, as it manifests itself in your life and as you become even more targeted on the things that God's uniquely empowered you and gifted you. And as you see the fruit of that, both personally and collectively, when those things are increasing in quality and quantity, you will find stability. That's a fruit. You'll still feel the wind and you'll still see the waves, but you will not be moved. You will not be moved. It's almost, it's almost humorous to think about the lack of stability I had both entering into the faith and in the first few years. There's moments and stories I've told uh, different friends and for sure my family that are humorous now only because they're like 20 years in the past. They didn't feel like that then. But the gospel brings stability. Brings stability. That's the first evidence. The second evidence is this, speaking the truth in love. After finding stability, what you want is you want others to experience it. And God tells you right here how to lead others to stability. You lead others to stability by speaking the truth in love. Truth in love. <clears throat> please, please, please do not um, uh, uh, give weight to one of those over the other one. They were put together for a reason. God knew in his perfect wisdom that we needed those two kept this tight together. Truth in love. Do not deliver truth outside of love. Husbands, parents, wives, anyone truth should be encapsulated in love not to the point where you don't get to the truth not to the point where the truth isn't isn't communicated truth in love but but church also don't 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 just think sermon here for truth 
A sermon should be one example of many in the body of Christ. Speaking the truth in love is for every saint. It's an essential part of the work of ministry. In Proverbs, it says things like, open rebuke is better than hidden love. Talking about what would happen if we just gave love with no truth ever. You see this throughout the word, encouraged for all people. It should be happening in every relational context in the body of Christ, speaking the truth in love. It should be happening among friends, within, within marriages, with, with parents, with small groups, with large groups, with all groups at all times. Any group that represents the body of Christ should have the space to speak the truth in love or it is not really a healthy part of the body of Christ. But the manner must be love. It, it must, and here's the, sort of the picture I have of this, it, 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 must, it must come out of love for God and for others, the truth that I want to speak. Then I speak the truth in love because I'm wanting to lead them to a love for God and a love for others, encapsulated in love. So let's just see it all together right now. You find stability by standing on the rock of Christ and his word, and it creates and leads you to this abiding relationship with him. And then from a place of stability, we start to speak the truth in, in love to others, and when we speak the truth in love, what we're calling people to, if this was a picture, this stage was the picture of stability in Christ, then in speaking the truth in love, what I'm saying to you is I'm saying to you, don't stay in your seats. Come up here to what I'm expressing and teaching you from God's word. Come stand up here in your life like I'm striving to in mine, and then you begin to speak the truth in love, and let's invite some more people up here. And then when that happens, there's a joy that comes as we're all finding stability and it's spreading. And that's why, look at the last part of the passage, that's why it says, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And then each person is, is based on how they're equipped for their part once they're on the stage, once they've received the truth and standing in stability now you're able to work properly with what God's given you and the body grows into the fullness of Christ. And look at that last part. It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That right there, that phrase at the end of 16 is the, is the, is the summation of the spirit of what's happening when the mission of God is playing out in the church, in the local church. That is the vision of Ephesians 4, and I want that, and I'm praying for that, and I'm doing everything I know how in my role, with my giftedness, to see this play out in this church. And I'm willing, like I know so many are alongside me, to have the courage and the faith to deconstruct and reconstruct anything that gets in the way of that end. So let me just review. Because what we're chasing after is to build up the body into the fullness of Christ. Who builds the disciples in the local church? Every saint. What characteristics of ministry lead people to fullness in Christ? Growing unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. What are the evidences of growth in a local body of Christ? 
increasing stability, and speaking the truth in love. And we should be really convicted by this central call. And I've asked and our staff has asked and some of our leaders are praying that, that this would come to bear on our hearts and that we'd be compelled to it, not by the voice of a pastor, but by the voice of the Holy Spirit. Let the Spirit apply it to your life. Allow me to lead us in applying this to our church. So let's just process together, and I want to really in some ways, I think sometimes in the church, particularly in, in our church, I think sometimes people are like, how do you guys process through these things, and how does it play out on, on the staff and maybe in some conversations with the elders? Well, let me just be completely transparent to you that these conversations started long before I preached this message because in preparing for this message, I started to experience the conviction of God's Spirit. And so four primary tensions that we're feeling right now as a church in regards to the application of Ephesians chapter four. First, this one. Busyness does not lead to mission effectiveness. It's true personally and it's true as a church. Doing things for the sake of doing things because we've always done those things is a problem at every level for discipleship. Can I get an amen? Like, doing things for the sake of doing things because we've always done those things is a problem. We can't keep doing things without evaluating if they're effective things. We're not trying to make disciples of, of, of people. We're not trying to make disciples of any of the staff at this church. We're not trying to make disciples of Christ's church. The name is Christ Church because we want to make disciples of one name only, the name of Christ. Disciples of Christ. That's it. And I want to challenge you to process through the fact that Christians gathering together is not necessarily fulfilling the mission of loving God, loving others, and making disciples. You have to ask the question, we have to ask the question together, how can we gather with purposefulness? I don't want to do a bunch of events. We don't want to lead a bunch of events at this church just to satisfy some perspective of what people think the church should or should not be doing just to satisfy consumers. How do we lead in a way that leads to more saints contributing, not just consuming, because consuming will never lead to the joy of what Jesus died for like contributing will. And we're wrestling with this tension and, and we know as a, as a staff, as a church, as a leadership team, we have to evaluate this carefully and slowly but we're wrestling with it. That's one. Number two is this. We're feeling the tension of we must share the work of ministry. But, but I'm just going to bring you into sort of the, the craziness of processing through this in our church right now. First, what is the work of ministry and what is not? How do we highlight in the midst of ministry that happens from our church that sometimes leads to events and things that we announce to the church without discounting the reality that there is a quality of smaller organic ministry that's happening all the time in our church? 
that, that, that never gets the platform to be announced, but in, honestly, when we talk about it among our staff, is more significant than anything and sometimes more effective than what we uh, proclaim and invite everyone to. For example, I'll use categories like uh, men's and women's ministry or, or, um, or, or compassion ministries. Those things don't happen just through ministry events. Let's, 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 let's deconstruct this idea about those things that they only exist if the church has a ministry for those things and has events for them. Men's and women's ministry and compassion ministry is happening in community groups. Some of those ministries uh, amongst smaller groups in our church are happening as we serve alongside one another. Like, there's community being built there. It's happening in smaller groups of friends. It's extremely effective there. And so we're asking the question, what more is really needed and why? In sharing the work, then, with the church, like we want to with great zeal, what is the process for equipping? What are the qualifications? I don't know about you, but I wanna, if I'm going to start something or someone's going to teach something, I want to entrust you to someone who at least has been qualified. How do we stay simple and focused instead of releasing more people to do more things that are good but not great? In a church this big, how do we do this so it's not completely chaotic? We're wrestling with this tension. And if you think I've arrived at a solution, you're wrong. I haven't. We haven't. That second, must share the work of ministry. You're feeling that tension. Thirdly, we must develop clear pathways to maturity. Bill Hull in his book, Disciple Making Church, says that discipleship is the intentional, emphasis on that word, that's the one we're wrestling with, that word, the intentional training of disciples with accountability on the basis of loving relationships. You see it there, it comes right out of Ephesians 4, that quote. I'm like, you just rephrased Ephesians 4. That's what every Christian author does if they're dependent on the word. This is our mandate, it's our call, it's our responsibility to steward. And our church and our leadership team is spending an inordinate amount of time evaluating this and seeing places where we need to deconstruct and reconstruct. Moves are coming in this area in the fall in our community groups. It's coming in a variety of ministry layers and levels, specifically over the next year. Our goal, church, is to establish, as we've tried and strived to be in a place of learning and um, coming below and learning from other people who have way more experience, um, we're wanting to develop with great clarity for our church an assimilation pathway. How do I get connected to the body of Christ at Christ Church? A discipleship pathway. How do I take someone from first coming to faith in Christ to the place where we feel like they have the gospel essentials that are reflected in Ephesians 4? We're not there. And finally, we've started to play this out in some ways, but a servant leadership pathway. So there's a call to the work of ministry, a tr essential training in the work of ministry so that we're calling out people's purpose. And the purpose of a disciple is to run through those three things, grow in this way, and then be a full saint doing the work of ministry so that we can get to the end of Ephesians 4.16 more clearly in our church. We're wrestling with that tension. And that leads me to this final one. The only way that we can wrestle with those three tensions is to slow down for a season of processing 
and clarifying. Our church flat out through numerous conversations and observation over the past probably year and a half most acutely, but it's been, been working through it even before that, needs to walk more slowly and communicate more effectively with more clarity. Our church grew fast, for those of you who um, have come a little later. Um, we launched the church and we were in the fall at two services. And um, some of you maybe only by God's grace saw that things seemed to be working. But those of us on the inside were like, this is really fast. And um, listen, that's been a work of God. And I love the stories of the reasons why God's drawn people to our church over time. And I'm deeply, deeply thankful. But one of the things that happened in the midst of that is we didn't get the time to develop some ministry slowly over time. We we got ourselves in spots where we added staff quickly. We added ministries because we thought we had to based on the size of our church. Those are some fundamental mistakes we made. We, in some places, not all places, in some places we didn't have a clear vision and it caused confusion. And I've even stood up here in the past and said we didn't communicate well on that. And I would say again, like we, we haven't at times. We've made some mistakes, and then uh, that just led right into 2020. That disrupted everything. We just moved to survival mode in that. And, but, but, but honestly, church, in the midst of that, those, that season, um, God did some unusual things in our things, some, some things we didn't even expect in our staff team, in my heart, in our elders' hearts. And we just saw that the weight of carrying these things forward in the way that we had been carrying them had overwhelmed our staff and other leaders way too often. The staff have described it in different ways, but one of my, the, the ways it just kind of crystallized, has crystallized it in my head, one, some have said we're trying to replace the subfloor while still living on the floor. Others have said that we feel like God's calling us to sort of fix the engine while still running the car down the highway at 60 miles per hour, which seems relatively stupid and would be true, just to picture that in your head. So we need to slow down. And honestly, I, I think sometimes the slowing down is not only a theme in Scripture, but a theme for our lives personally. And so ask this question, is Ephesians 4 really playing out in your life? Is it really playing out in our church? In this next year, we're going to pause many things to slow down and fix the engine. Once the main pathways of assimilation, discipleship, leadership development are more fully developed, then we're going to carefully consider the structure and plan for other ministries in our church. There are many models of ministry, and this season, we're praying, would give us space to determine what is best for our church for our church. The main things are not going to be paused. I'm not about to drop an announcement that we're not going to have worship services for a year. That's not happening. Worship services, community groups, next generation, students and children, but everything else across the spectrum of our church is going to be simplified and evaluated carefully over the next year. 
giving time in that for careful conversation with many in our church to get broad input. That's already begun with our staff, our elders, and a variety of leaders. We're going to craft a survey this fall to learn from our church regarding the fulfillment of Ephesians 4 in your lives. We want to hear from you. Our elders and pastors are making a move in the coming weeks to, um, to get a list split up between all of us to follow up with every covenant member household to learn about your discipleship and how we can pray for that to continue to grow at Christ Church. We want to hear from anyone. We want to meet with you on this. We want to process through this carefully. And we're going to slow down because I can't I can't move away from this passage. I can't just go, I preached a message in Labor Day 2022 and then we just went back to things that we were doing without allowing it to fall heavy and deeply and joyously, honestly, on our church. So we're going to slow down to focus on this conversation because we love God and we love you. And so I want you to pray together during this season that we as a church of Jesus Christ cannot settle for anything less than what Jesus commands us. And too much of American Christianity is focused only on what happens at the building, too dependent on the programs and the staff, and they're failing to build up the body into the fullness of Christ. And not only are they suffering, but the next generation is suffering because the clarity about the gospel is diminished. We're asking God for that not to be the case at Christ Church, amen? We need a season to deconstruct some things and reconstruct some things that are healthier, stronger, and more faithful to Christ and his word. So we're gonna focus together and we're gonna process more carefully, honestly, than we ever have in the history of our church. How are we called to build up the body into the fullness of Christ? That is the only goal worth chasing as the church of Jesus Christ. And I'm calling you and I'm asking you to pray alongside and be a part of the conversation for us to chase that together. Let's pray. God, I'm asking that you would move in power, lead us tenderly and lovingly. Thank you for getting this saint to the place where I see not only the need for this, but needed to communicate it clearly. Thank you for leading me to this passage and this opportunity and this time. I trust your timing, God. It has been proven itself to be perfect again and again. Thank you for the way you've tenderly led our church. Thank you for your grace, even in the moments when we couldn't see our own weakness. Thank you for your grace to us in the moments when you had to pick us up after we had made mistakes that we regretted, caused pain we never intended. Thank you, God, for the grace that has seen a fruit that I has stirred my heart on the darkest of days and has led me forward with great joy and anticipation on the best days. Thank you for what this process is going to mean for our staff team. Thank you for the, what this process is going to mean for the people who are leading and wanting to lead. Thank you for the, what this process is going to mean for some, God, who I believe have not been developed in the way that your heart longs for. Thank you, God, for your leadership.
You are the great shepherd, and ultimately in all things we bow before you. Let this Ephesians 4 vision be a vision that drives us forward, that we chase after in this next year and for as long as you, God, you give us life until you return or until we meet you face to face. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence and power. Continue to lead. It's in Jesus' name, amen.